Welcome to the Creative Plan Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews of items, and convention panels, and other exciting things that we run into from time to time. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok's story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. As well as the author of the critically acclaimed novel, Hindsight, uh, was a winner of the IBPA Benjamin Franklin Award in 27, the Red Book Magazine Best of 2016, and the Publishers Weekly uh, Star Review. And most recently, she wrote The Infinite Now, which is a winner of the American Book Fest Best Book Awards. And her upcoming novel, Deepest Blue, is scheduled to be released uh, September 24th on Spark Press. She calls it Brigadoon Meets Pippin. That description alone makes me want to go out and read it. And uh, a native Philadelphia, Mindy resides in Phoenix with her husband. She loves white heroines with special powers. Alas, she has many great resides and bake cookie, bakes cookies in West Phoenix, or West of Phoenix. She's the author of The Clockwork Dagger, which was a 2015 Locust Award finalist for first novel, and The Clockwork Crown, a, a Romance Times Readers Reviewers uh, Choice finalist from Murder Voyager. Her novella, Wings of Sorrow and Bone, was a 2016 Nebula nominee, and her new alt history steampunk series begins with Breath of Earth. And continues now with her new release, Call of Fire. The final volume in the trilogy, Roar of Sky, will be out in October 2018. And last but not at all least is Gail Carriger. She writes comedies of manners mixed with paranormal romance and the sexy San Andreas Shifter series as J.L. Carriger. Her books include The Parasol Protectorate, Custard Protocol, The Supernatural Society s- series for adults, and The Finishing School series for young adults. She has published in many languages and has over a dozen New York Times bestsellers. Yeah. And I do have a couple of announcements I need to make. The presentation will last one hour, including questions and answers. Um, we generally will be willing to take questions through, but for the most part, if you have a question that's not related to the topic we're talking about, I might ask you to hold it till the end. Um, immediately following this session, the authors will be autographing books in the UA bookstore tent on the mall downstairs across the way. Books are available for purchase at this location, and any book you will supports our literary efforts. Because you are enjoying the festival, we hope you are a member of the festival and of 
or a friend of the festival, or a program, or a sponsor. Join us this evening for a free concert immediately following the festival at Jefferson Field at the far side of the UA Mall, south of Science City. The rock bottom remainders, including band members Dave Berry, Amy Tan, Ridley Pearson, Mitch Album, Alan Flybell, Greg Isles, and Scott Turow will be playing. Out of respect for the authors and your fellow audience members, please silence your cell phones. And um, I do have a note that the Tucson Steampunk Society, uh, which is a wonderful organization, <laughs> has a very brief presentation they would like to make at the end of the, uh, of the panel. That is fine for with all of our panelists. So, without further ado, um, let me just start uh, maybe immediately with, uh, I'll actually start with Gail and uh, have you each just tell us a little bit about how magic manifests in the worlds of your novels. Introduce them for people who might not be familiar with All right, uh, it's a little amusing to be on this panel because I don't actually have magic in uh, most of my books. Um, I use Victorian science and then I basically take science and make it real, so the Victorians believed in some pretty fantastical things, and so that's kind of how I play with it. So I guess you could say that the magic in my universe is sort of pseudoscience, such as it is. Uh, and that was a, a rule that I set for myself to challenge myself to write. I wanted to uh, only write like sort of supernatural elements and creatures that could be explained by the Victorians. Um, so that was one of the rules for myself. I, I do have a, a, a modern series that has magic in it, but again, it's got pseudoscientific explanations. So. Well, for me, I love writing about magic because I still want to find magic in the world. And in my Clockwork Dagger books, my main character, Octavia, is uh, essentially a doctor and heals with magic. And she's based on, if you do role-playing games, the White Wizard, the High Priestess, things along those lines, and in her case, her magic derives from a world tree that she called the Lady. And much of the book is about the drama of her healing and the consequences of her actions and people trying to kill her because, of course, it's a novel and that kind of thing just happens. <laughs> and then in my new series, Beginning with Breath of Earth, uh, the first book in that is primarily about rewriting the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And, and trying to figure out how to rewrite that, I was like, okay, what, how can I work magic into this? And then the obvious answer was geomancy. So much of the book revolves around geomancy and works in lots of not-so-mythological creatures and how that connects with the natural magic of the world. Hi. Well, the magic in my world... Um, it just arises from the culture. I am Italian. You may have guessed that from my name. And if you've read my books, uh, you definitely know I'm Italian. And uh, the magic I present is, I don't even think of it as magic. To me, it's Tuesday. You know, so um, doesn't everybody remember their past lives? <laughs> so everybody have a magical curtain sitting in their attic someplace with which they can manipulate time? Uh, so I, don't, I consider it more magical realism rather than magic, and it's in, it's in that old-fashioned Mediterranean sense of it just happens. <coughs> I think actually that dovetails right away into the next question, and that's what drew you to the specific time period you're writing in, and why don't you just continue to do it and go along with the rest of that? Well, I'll go to um, 
Infinite Now, which is a historical fantasy that's, I think, the bicentenary. Um, I uh, said it 100 years ago in, uh, during the flu epidemic in 1918. Philadelphia is one of the hardest hit cities. Conveniently enough, since I know so much about Philadelphia, that worked out well. Uh, I was also in the throes of doing genealogy. Uh, for my family, I am a hopeless genealogist. <laughs> I'll do your family. Give me some names and I'll start doing it. So um, I thought it was odd because I had found my grandfather in the 1920 census in an orphanage. And I was unexpected. I knew he had emigrated with the family, and the family lived in South Philadelphia, which in those days was much closer to Center City. And um, I, I couldn't understand what, what he was doing in an orphanage. And I found his brother someplace else. And I was like, what in the world happened? And I found a marriage record for my great-grandfather to a second wife of all things. Now, if you know Italians, we don't do that. <laughs> we marry for life. And sometimes into the afterlife. It just doesn't happen. So I, um, I went on a search. And I found out, you know, talking to relatives that might know, whatever. My great-grandmother had died. And... My great-grandfather was a widower with four children, and he, I think he got the sister-in-law, his brother brought his wife, and they both come live with them, and then she died. And he was just overwhelmed. He farmed out the kids, and he went looking for a wife, and he did import one from Italy, that he remarried quickly to put the family back together, and that's what I felt. Got it in my head. <laughs> she died. 1919. Did I see something on Discovery Channel about this. <laughs> um, anyway, I ended up going through, I looked for her cause of death. I ended up in uh, genealogy records, which, is anybody here a genealogist? Anybody? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just the world's worst time suck, you know, and you just end up <laughs> after another. And I had noticed, it was during that time period, that all the normal causes of death, you know, childbirth, accidents, heart attacks, you know, normal stuff, gave way to Well, for my Clockwork Dagger books, it came down to writing what I couldn't find on the shelf and that I had been craving since I was about 12 years old. And that was a really good, adventurous fantasy novel with a strong heroine where a healer was the heroine of the story. Not the convenient character that the big burly heroes go to to just be patched up so they can take on the big bad guys. No, I wanted the healer to be the main character. And I wanted compassion to be their superpower. And I couldn't find it. Again and again, whether I was reading historical fantasy or reading urban fantasy, I kept seeing books where the healer was just there to keep the main heroes alive. And I see some of you are nodding because that's most of what you see out there. So I wrote The Clockwork Dagger because that's what I wanted to see. And I, now it's on the shelf. And I've had other people who tell me that they had been wanting it for years too. So it, it worked out in that way. And then with Breath of Earth, it came, the magic worked into the world because it came down to explaining why did the San Francisco earthquake happen for magical reasons. And I immediately went to geomancy, but then I had to build everything around geomancy because I didn't want it to just be the convenient power for my heroine. I wanted it to be 
integrated into the world and into the economy in a major way. And the way it works out is when an earthquake happens, that releases energy, and geomancers pull that in like a sponge. And within minutes, if the earthquake keeps happening, they'll essentially overload with a fever and die. So they either have to break contact with the earth somehow, or they have to have a rock called kermanite, which becomes the battery of the world. They channel the energy into kermanite, and these crystals hold the energy, which is then powers tanks, auto cars, and of course, airships. And so, yeah, I, I worked geomancy in, and it was all around that 1906 era, rewriting it to advanced technology a little bit for my own selfish interests, but still trying to keep it true to the period as well. I forgot the question. <laughs> what drew you to the Victorian age for, oh. for your books? Oh. And, and, and especially since you span the Victorian age through all of your books. Ridiculous big floofy dresses. Yes. <laughs> That is what drew me. Uh, I set my books in the uh, 1850s because enormous hoopy petticoat things, and then the 1870s because enormous ridiculous bustle things, and then the 1890s because the puffed sleeves. <laughs> the puffed sleeves! And because I write comedy, there's a lot of things that can be stashed and a lot of uh, comedic moments to be had if you are writing with uh, really absurd clothing. <laughs> So, so this actually kind of leads into uh, how, uh, how did you research your novels? And actually, I'm going to start with Beth since I haven't started with you yet. Uh, um, how do you research your novels? Did, did you actually visit the places that you've been, uh, live in them? Um, uh, if so, uh, how do you account for changes that happen with time? And if you haven't, how do you actually learn about these places okay. and get them in that moment in time? Yeah, this is a big question, especially in regards, I'll talk, talk specifically about Breath of Earth and Call of Fire for this one, because since it is 1906 set, and I did want accuracy, it, it's huge to me, but I also, if I was going to make changes, I wanted to be conscious of them if possible. But I think whenever you're writing historical fiction, there are dangers around that. You have to kind of be able to say, okay, there's no way I can get everything accurate or I will be writing this till the end of my days. So a lot of it is about finding sources, uh, reading extensively, finding primary sources if possible. In 1906, that can be especially hard if you're writing about the Chinese in San Francisco because all of the records were lost in the fire for the most part. So there are major empty spaces in history around that. And yeah, it's just lots of reading, researching, Widely, uh, there are things like archive.org, and on there, the New York Public Library has a database with 144,000 free books. And they have them available in like 10 different ebook formats on there. So if you're into research, definitely go to archive.org for that. I use that a lot for my third book that's coming out in October, Roar of Sky, because I needed to research a lot about Hawaii during that time period. And along those lines, because you mentioned travel, I did a research trip to Hawaii last January, which was the best tax write-off ever. <laughs> and I had to read a lot to research in advance of that, and on archive.org I found a lot of travel logs written in that period by men and women talking about going all over the big island and seeing the lava lake and traveling down on horseback, the Kilauea crater and all that. So when I traveled there, 
I told my husband's like, okay, I don't know how the weather's going to be in the next couple days. We are taking the exact trail that a century ago everyone used to take on horseback. So we walked the full length down this trail to get down there, and unfortunately, right now, it's blocked off because of the the sulfur plumes aren't blowing that direction, so that you can't walk across the crater at this time. But we walked all around and drove all around the vicinity, and just it was good. I mean, it would still work. I mean, I say it's a tax write-off, and we still kept that. I was, I was up at five o'clock in the morning, so we could go all over the place and get as much in as we could. But I think it's important when you're talking about research, people are intimidated by research, and they also think they'll be bored by research. So I think it's important if you're going into that, be excited by what you're writing about. Have it be someplace you really want to go or something you really do want to read about. That way, even if you're having to read 10 books on it, you're still interested and engaged. Otherwise, it's torture. Dale? Uh, so you can Google Gail Carragher Research Victorian Era, and I have a, quite a few blog posts up there, and it's got lots of links and tips and all that sort of stuff. Um, so one of the things I do do is collect Baedekers like they're going out of style, because they are. Uh, Baedekers are Victorian travel journals that are written by Victorians for Victorians about other places, and they are full of um, maps from that time period and tips on changing money, you know, and uh, so I only tend to take my characters to place I have a Baedeckers for. Uh, so I have to have already have a, have a primary source ready to go. Um, I also do tend to take them places that I've traveled to, uh, which brings me to Singapore, where I was recently, and I accidentally promised the Minister of Culture of a totalitarian regime that I would put Singapore in my next book. So <laughs> Singapore is in my next book. <laughs> So be careful what you promise as an author. <laughs> I also make fun of Singapore because I make fun of everything, and now I'm really nervous. <laughs> I know you have a, a lot to say. But yeah, I, I love your Writer's Digest article on research. Um, David's referencing an article I, I put in into a, I wrote for Writer's Digest uh, called 11 Unconventional Ways to Kick Your Historical Up a Notch. <laughs> and it was, um, I recommend it, and it still gets a lot of retweets and things. It um, talks about things like, you know, looking for like an old wallpaper sample <laughs> books and uh, looking through old recipe books and haunting garage sales <laughs> for things of the time period. Um, my uh, husband's great aunt was the first woman gynecologist, you know, in, in New York City. And among her mementos was a book on childbirth, which, you know, from my modern perspective, was equal parts horrifying and hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was written for the modern woman, the modern woman of like, you know, the early 20s. And I, it was just you know, invaluable when I wrote the childbirth scene and <laughs> it now. Um, I look through catalogs. You want to know how they dressed in 1918? Look at the Sears Robot catalog, catalog in 1918. It has everything from garters to whatever they were wearing under their clothes. Uh, you know, what was the style of shoe men were wearing? I had so many surprises. I didn't realize men were wearing knickers, which I don't know why I thought they weren't wearing knickers because my have a lot pictures of relatives and ancestors from that time that were wearing knickers. <laughs> but I just had knickers and spats, things like that. Um, I had a lot of primary source material. Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> On the right chin, yes. 
Um, my grandfather was a tailor. I, I wrote what I knew. My, my grandfather and my great-grandfather were tailors. My great-grandfather had worked at uh, Wanamaker's uh, and been very innovative in his tailoring at the time. His entire village was from a little place in Nerado called Nerado in Abruzzi, and they were all, every single one of them, um, in that village, they were all seamstresses and embroiderers and tailors, and I learned through to my many hours in dusty archives, <laughs> looking at these things. Um, so I decided to take all that knowledge and apply it. So people say, well, what kind of research did you do? And I'm like, research? I lived this. This is my life. I know these people. I grew up with accents. Everybody had an accent. I knew the Italian cadence. I know the Italian language. I heard the stories of the old country. I heard what they did when they came here. I mean, I was very little when I heard these stories, but they told me the stories that I told in my book when they were young and hopeful and had arrived and they were so excited and they were American and they were going to do wonderful things like go to typewriting school and, you know, be modern and forward thinking. So that's where I got my research. A lot of it is innate. I grew up in a Philadelphia that had cobblestone streets, that had trolley cars. The Italian market, which I call the 9th Street market in the book, um, is not called the Italian market. It hasn't changed all that much. People haven't changed all that much. I've made multiple trips to Italy. It is like going home to me. I know those hand gestures. You don't even have to know the language. I know the hand gestures. I know the food. I know what the people are saying to each other. So I have that advantage. And everything else, um, there's a lot of places you can go. Read the newspapers. And I don't just read about the thing you're interested in. Read it cover to cover like it just bumped on your doorstep, like you're a person of the time picking it up. <laughs> You know, and um, and kind of immerse yourself in the period, and then stop and write. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> if you learn too much, it like it can bog down your book yeah. because you're like, oh, I happen to know that they light the stove exactly this way, and then you end up with four paragraphs about your book, and then you're being perfect. Why is this here? We don't care. <laughs> That's what editing's for. <laughs> So, moving, the, the next question uh, here is, why use magic at all? And I know, Gail, you don't technically have magic in your books, but you have werewolves and you have vampires, so you can, you can ask, so you can, you, you can address it from that point of view. But, but both you and Beth have ripping good adventure yarns without the magic, you know, if you took it out. Mindy, you would have a touching historical piece. What role does, does the supernatural element or the magic have in advancing narrative. Well, in my case, it's funny. Uh, but it's also a big fat excuse. So I can always explain, I can do hand wavy wavy and explain things away. <laughs> I don't have to go up against pure historical criticism. I'm, I'm not doing a, I'm not writing a historical piece. I'm writing a fantastical piece that happens to be set in a historical setting. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I also argue, and I will, I will argue any historian to the ground, that, that how do you know there weren't vampires and werewolves running around Victorian London? Because it's the only way it makes sense at all. <laughs> I'm sticking to my guns. <laughs> well, I write magic in because I think it sh I think it should exist. Because it does exist. Exactly. Well, we want... We want some people, you know, if they, if they want to have their own make-believe world. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm writing what I wish existed in the world. 
that's what it comes down to. I, I mean, it's cool. It's fun. It, it opens up so many possibilities. I want to write about airships. And I want to write about people who do magic through compassion to help people. Not, you know, you get all the supervillains who want to destroy the world. They're a dime a dozen. But I want to read about the people who want to save the world. And saving with magic is fun and cool. I do it to just take everybody out of their paradigm and make them think differently <laughs> about what they're looking at. Um, at, its, at its heart, and infinite now, the, the protag is, she's a 16-year-old girl who's orphaned by the flu, and her brothers are all fighting in World War I and in the Asanza, which was not a good thing. And uh, you know, she's been left at the door of this old man as the only guy brave enough to stand between her and a and an orphanage because she's the daughter of the fortune teller. So they're not going to, you know, in case the only one, they don't want to take him to the orphanage because they're a little scared of her. They're really scared of her mother's spirit. You know, they don't want to do that. And and he's brave enough. And and but she's just forlorn. And you're right. I could have left it there. Like and and I did when I first started the story. I will full disclosure. I always mean to write my story straight. You're going to do it this time, Mindy. You're going to write it straight. You just no magic, no fairies, just. It never happens. I mean, before I knew it, I had a witch woman stalking her, and her mother had this magical curtain. And then the kid just got overwhelmed because, of course, what do you do with a 16 year old who's forward thinking? That's not the kind of straight I thought you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I have total surprises in the book on that one, too. <laughs> um, but I just thought, you know, you're just going just gonna to handle that, Mindy. And then this is really. I thought she got overwhelmed, and she had this mother's magical curtain. The next thing you know, you know, they wanted to marry her off, and there were other things happening she didn't like, and so she did what any 16-year-old would do. She threw everybody into a stagnant bubble of time. Yeah, of so course. Now she has to deal with the does. flu around her, having to do all the stuff that, you know, she doesn't want to do, like take care of the neighbor kids and, like, clean up puke and poop and whatever, and she's 16, and she can't fix it. <laughs> what do you do when you have one? She doesn't know what she's supposed to do, so she just has to deal with it. She did it without thinking. So all of you have kind of cultural connections to your, your magic and to your supernatural characters. And uh, you know, what role do you think culture, you know, magic plays in, in culture? What does magic tell us about <coughs> culture and how do you use it? I, uh, so my background is as an archaeologist. And this is a non sequitur because it doesn't really pertain to my stuff at all, but I do remember having a conversation with somebody about the construction of a keep and a barbican and outer fortress walls um, in societies where you have uh, major projectile weapons or not. So uh, you have a smooth walled curve if you're just going to be dealing with archers, for example, uh, but you do kind of star-shaped, sharp constructions if you're going to be dealing with cannonballs and things like that. Um, and so, for example, if you have mages in your universe who are hurling fireballs at things, then the um, cultural remnants of the society that is coping with that are going to construct and build and respond to that kind of threat. So you're literally, if you have mages, you have different kinds of buildings. And that's the kind of thought process that if you are world building with magic, I believe you should be putting into that world. Now, I'm speaking as an archaeologist, so I want to see the physical response the object response to the injection of, in my case, supernatural creatures. How are we gonna? How are the scientists going to react to the presence of immortals? So if you're gonna have vivisections, you're gonna have uh, them trying to get away. Humans start behaving as a prey species, that kind of thing. 
Um, that is the, the, for me, the super interesting results of culture in response to the element of a, of a supernatural or a paranormal. Yeah, it comes down to really, like she said, the world building. And you have to think through on multiple levels. You can't just think about, as you know, as nice as it is to think about the cool aspects of it. You do have to think about the architecture. You have to think about the clothing. And, yeah, and, of course, you are so good when you write about the clothing. But, yeah, I mean, it really comes down to the details like that. And that's what makes the world convincing and realistic. But, again, as Mindy was pointing out, you don't want to get bogged down in that because, World building is lots of fun, but it can also be a black hole and suck you in forevermore, and you will procrastinate. Just keep building this awesome world that you could you could role play in and write books in. And there has to be a point where you stop and handle that. But I mean, it's even things like coin, the coins, the economy, uh, magical creatures. Where do they live? What are the native species? What are the invasive species? And I try to work in invasive creatures that are magical within my books because. I mean, think about things like tumbleweeds, Russian thistle. I'm, obviously, a lot of you are nodding because pe a lot of people who watch westerns assume that, oh, that's just you know a native western thing. No, it was. It's called Russian thistle because it came over on the, you know, it was imported from Russia and started spreading in like the late 1880s and soon as was everywhere. And you have to think about things like that in a magical world and and have that overflow into magical creatures. Well, for me, the um, the actual vehicle for the magic, which is this magical curtain, is very cultural. Um, as I said, my grandfather was a tailor, and uh, all my aunts and uncles could work a needle. I don't know if they, I don't know if it's required when they're young, <laughs> in Italy at the time. But uh, I, I am fortunate that I do have a collection of uh, items that are crocheted and even embroidered, and that's what I was thinking about. Because I wanted something different than a crystal ball or tarot cards or typical ways of, of telling fortunes. And Italians have got such a, oh my God, you know, give us a drop of olive oil and we'll start telling you about how many kids you're going to have and, you know, um, you know, your fortunes for the next 30 years. I mean, we do, we stick, you know, vinegar and olive oil and they'll throw oregano. I'm not lying. They throw oregano on the table and we'll try to tell you. It's like they're a version of tea leaves. Well, so I thought, well, I'm going to try and, you know, come up with something different. I was in Santa Fe and I, I, uh, at the art museum there, they had an exhibit on pinhole cameras. And I didn't see anything else at the art museum for two days because I spent all my time in the pinhole camera exhibit. And they had done a, uh, replica of a pinhole camera, you go in and you could sit in there, and I was like, this is magic. The people are there, but they're here on the back wall. I had never heard of this. It's called a camera obscura. Anybody wants to Google it, okay? But I was I was so excited. I just kept telling my husband, I, a, I figured out the magic. I figured out the magic. And, 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 and I thought, this is so what they do. It's embroidered. It's a beautiful curtain. It's embroidered. It's been passed down through hundreds of years. And I thought, I'll make that curtain a pinhole camera. And that's her vehicle for seeing into the future. It, it projects on the wall, and she can run it ahead or run it behind. And uh, you know, so that's how I ended up coming up with that specific vehicle. Mm -hmm. 
and I will mention that NOA over here at the Book Festival has set up a camera obscura. Are you kidding? Uh, uh, I will like be in there just sitting there going, it's so, so if anyone wants to see what she's talking about, there is one here actually at the Book Festival. I was actually here at the festival when this idea came up. Well, like, we had been in Santa Fe, and I kept thinking about it, and I was with my, my writing partner, and I was sitting in our hotel room going, you have to see what I just discovered, and I'm putting the blackout curtains up, and I'm like, see, see, you can see the proof, so. So now all of these, because of the, the magical element, we're talking a little bit alternate history here. Is the magic or the supernatural element the only alternate history, or have only ultimate element, or have you all kind of played with history in, in other ways, or, or do you try to stick straight to history? Um, maybe I'll start with Mindy. Um, tragically, the history in my book is pretty, pretty darn real. Um, I didn't change it for the magic. I did actually look for a neighborhood that might have had a lull <laughs> in the flu during that tier period, and I, I think I did find some place where it just it wasn't quite as uh, intense, except for at the first it was, and then it kind of uh, tapered off. I did match the timing of the Battle of the Asanza, which was October 24th, and also the end of the flu, um, with the time uh, was voice, flu, I'm sorry. <laughs> when she, she collapses the bubble, when the bubble finally collapses. I did uh, marry it to that time because the flu did drop off very quickly. It started, I think, September 16th with the very first case brought in by. Navy people that came in on a Navy ship, and it exploded in the Italian section. Um, a lot of people there worked down the Navy yards. They brought it home, so you had a few cases. Then they had that Liberty Loan Parade. They went ahead with it, and it just exploded three days later. It was like an incubator for the germ, but it dropped off very rapidly after about October 24th, like boom. Boom. 12,000 people died in Philadelphia, and I'm very sure they had them stacked up. At the um, at the undertakers, uh, they had no coffins. They were burying them in mass graves. They were just throwing them in sheets, basically. They some of them came into the hospital in sheets because they knew they were going. If they got to the hospital, that they were going to go out in the sheets, you know, the winding sheets. They were like ready to go. Um, so. Well, I think you, you pretty much covered it. Yes, you're, you're unfortunately real. Yeah, it was, it was way too real. There was no real um, change in the history. It's very, very accurate history of what happened. My series, Starting with the Breath of Earth, is heavily alt history. Uh, I have the Civil War ended early because the Union allied with Japan to obliterate the Confederacy. And now in 1906, uh, they're allied as the Unified Pacific and they're taking over mainland Asia. And as my book is, that book principally takes place in San Francisco, I go into quite a bit into what the Chinese endured in that period. And unfortunately, as in Mindy's case, it is accurate to a painful degree. And one thing I've had many readers tell me is they were shocked because as they read the book, they thought I made up the stuff and made it to make it as bad as it was. And in the back of each book in the series, I have an author's note where I describe what the actual history is, and I include all of my sources. And I also have those all on my website if you go to bethcato.com. And yeah, so I build on all that, and I build in a lot of what really happened in California, in particular at that time period, against the Chinese, which was essentially genocide. People weren't, the Chinese were not treated as human beings. And I built that into my book because there's a character named Lee who is 
essentially Ingrid's adoptive brother, and they're very close, and they go through a lot in the course of the books. And I really, I believe, I really, it's important to me to, to bring in the real history like that so that people can learn as they go. I mean, I want the books to be an escape, but I also want people to realize at the end that, wow, this, there, there's also some real history to this and learn from it in a fun way. Uh, I don't know how to not be facetious, so I guess I'll just be facetious. <laughs> I don't like reality, and that's why I write fiction. So, uh, one of the things I do is twist the history to be more pleasant, because uh, I'd rather think of it that way. Thank you very much. Um, so, I write what I like to call uh, re-explained history. I think it comes, again, from being an archaeologist, where I like to look at the evidence and then ignore what the historians say and uh, re-explain it. So, for example, uh, people are obsessed with wearing cravats because there are vampires in high society and you need to hide the bites on your neck. So that explains cravats. Things like that. Uh, you know, King Henry broke with the church, uh, not because of the whole wives thing, that was a cover, but because he wanted to start using werewolves in his armies. Uh, the church does not approve of this kind of behavior. So that kind of, I just kind of like take a look at the weirdest and most absurd parts of history and then decide that something else was really going on behind the scenes. <laughs> So I think at this point would be a good point to see if anyone in the audience has any questions for panelists. No questions at all. <laughs> 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 um, for Gail, I, I guess from you with reading your uh, reading writing with immortal characters, then your immortals are going to behave like immortals, which is they're going to regard humans as kind of mayfly-ish prey um, that, that you maybe sleep with uh, because you should play with your food. Uh, so, but that intentionally also allowed me to write uh, subversive characters in the guise of particularly the, the vampires, but also the werewolves. Um, and in my particular instance, uh, play is also sort of sexual promiscuity and or experimentalism and gender fluidity and that sort of thing. And it does allow me to both have those characters in my books, but also comment on modern society through those characters, which is, of course, what we are all really doing with the the comic writers. Um, and then I do that again in the Custer Protocol. I'm, I'm making a not very well uh, um, obscured commentary on nat nationalism, imperialism, and the um, colonialist agenda, simply by the vehicle of having a character who can literally become the creatures of other countries that are visited um, through a metanatural character. So I have a, a character that can touch other supernatural creatures and then become them. And so I have her go to other countries and touch other supernatural creatures, which is me like commenting on, on uh, the native uh, British mentality, so to speak, in colonialism. Um, and that is, of course, the joy of writing with a fantastic element, is that you can do what Star Trek has done and still does, and, and you can do, you can make quite overt statements on uh, the world as we have it now uh, without being uh, accused of it, <laughs> of attempting to manipulate it even as you do. Uh, and that's the power of fiction as well. Any other comments from the panelists? We have a question in the middle. Uh, 
pseudoscientific Oh man, that's really hard. Um, I I really like okay. So the the Victorians have something called the counterbalance theorem, which is uh, something that kind of persists into uh, modern wooey science. Which is, uh, for example, the idea that the um, antidote to a poisonous plant will be growing near the poisonous plant. Um, that those kinds of ideas uh, that comes kind of straight out of the Victorian era. I, I love Victorian medical science in particular because it's particularly awful, uh, <laughs> very concerning. Um, I love. I, I also read uh, Pregnancy One and uh, a book on pregnancy, Edward Flute's uh, uh, Common Sense and Plain Home Talk, which is an American um, medical scientific journal. Uh, he postulates that uh, pregnant women should avoid being around people with very frowny expressions on their faces, uh, because their babies might come out with a, a permanent frown. Uh, so you have to be very careful about the mood of the people that you're around when you're pregnant. Uh, I love that kind of thing. <laughs> it makes me very happy, and then I will go muck around and try and make it actually work like that in my universe. So in that same vein, for, for the other two of you, like Beth, do you, I know you do a lot of working and plotting out your magic system and such, but you know, and, and how much of the rules did you have ahead of time? How much did you, uh, how much of that did you uh, essentially discover while you were writing, or was it all just something that, that you had actually plotted out very specifically, or did you actually use sources for it? It develops in layers. Uh, that's what it comes down to. There's the level of base research, just to be able to start writing, and then as you write, you realize, okay, I need to know more about this, 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 and this, and then you seek out more sources. And there are so many fun things that you discover along the way that are just completely funny, like talking about Hawaii again. I found two different guidebooks written like 20 years apart. Both of them had the exact same joke told by guides on the big island, <laughs> taking the tourists down to the lava lake about it raining eight days a week. <laughs> and it's one of those things, I mean, I'm like, and it's like, how many generations of guys told us? And, I, and I, when I, we were there on the big island, I was waiting for someone to continue and send it. And Mindy, did you, I know you, you start talking about the camera obscura, but did you research other elements of this, or was it something that... Yes, I researched all the books out there on how to stagnate time. Don't we all? Of course, there's lots of them. Um, I did. I did have to. Uh, you, you have to have a sense of reality. You make magic, but it has to make some sense. So, what happens when you make a bubble? I mean, what does a bubble do? It expands. It expands. It expands. But it also can clamp down. You know, what happens to all those seconds and minutes? I have it accumulating within this bubble. These people, they they weren't just kind of stagnant. They were oppressed, and, and it was getting worse. It's a point they can't breathe. They can't, um, you know, they have this every, boy, I made the rule that everyday life continues. I mean, you know, you sleep, and you eat, you go to the bathroom, and, you know, whatever. And, and she has the same issue of, understanding, you know, well, maybe the germs aren't growing, but they're also not dying. These people aren't getting better, and they're not dying, but if I don't feed them, they're going to starve. So it's a constant, she put herself on this, like, treadmill, but I had to make it, you know, real, what the magic would do. Like, if it was a bubble, how does the bubble behave, and what are the things that uh, she has to deal with 
in the bubble. So yeah, there are rules for bubble stagnation time changes. <laughs> I guess I'm the expert <laughs> how to do that in your next book. <laughs> I love the, uh, occasionally we get funny letters, and I'm sure you ladies do as well, but um, I, I remember I got one at one point that was uh, very seriously concerned with how my dirigibles would work. <laughs> and I was like, you know, vampires and werewolves don't really exist. Right? <laughs> it's funny how people will suspend their disbelief for some things, but not others, and like how you have to play the, the rules of your universe up against the reality of the historical setting. I work at an observatory. Vampires do exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have a question in the back, and then please. When you ladies start your project, do you have an end goal in mind, or do you let the process take you there? In terms of actually writing the yeah, book, like, sort of yeah, you get this, you get this general idea of your book. Do you know, just let the path take you to uh, whatever ending develops, or do you have this end in mind that says, "Yeah, now I need to figure out how to get there." You, you write by the seat of another way. Might be, you write pants. by the seat of your pants, or do you plot your books uh, in detail? Uh, I'm a militant outliner. Uh, I like to say that I obey my outline overlord. I can't go on a bike ride without a reason to go somewhere. Um, I, I have to know the end. I am one of those readers who picks up books and reads the last page before I decide to go buy it. And I'm one of those people who search out spoilers on the end. I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time. Uh, I want to know what happens. So yeah, I, I like to outline. I couldn't pants. I uh, have been able to pants a short story or two, but that's about as far as I can. I, I need an outline most of the time. Um, novellas, some, sometimes I can be a little more relaxed about it. But I do tend to have, uh, pace is very, very important to me because I write comedies of manners and they can get slow real easy. If everybody's running around, something explodes, and then they sit down and have tea and talk about it. <laughs> it's not exactly exciting. Uh, so pace, pace is very important to me. And I think the, the best way to get pace is to, is to know all your pulse points on when you're writing a book. So uh, pace is not just the plot. Pace is also like when the sex scene happens or when the, you know, revelation happens is all other aspects of pace. And um, for me, I need an outline to get that right and to keep a readership engaged. Yeah, I am diagnosed OCD, and that really works into my historical fiction work in particular because the series I because it does, it is about pacing, and I am trying to work in a lot of historical details and still move my plot along, and that requires heavy duty outlines. Uh, for Roar of Sky, that comes out this October, I had an eleven thousand word outline which is by far the longest, but one of the reasons for that is because now I've, I know these characters so well that as I was outlining, I was spontaneously having conversations erupt between my characters. So my outline is all, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens, and then I have several paragraphs where my characters are just engaging in witty banter because that's what they do. So, you know, that's just kind of a product, and when I was writing my other Clockwork Dagger series, that same thing was happening in the second book, too. And, to me, I see that as a symptom that the book is working for me in my head, that I know my characters well enough that they are constantly wanting to talk and tell me things, and that they're exchanging that banter. And the important thing is to write that down because otherwise I don't trust that I will remember it. So I do just build into the outline so that I know when these events happen, okay, there is going to be this conversation that takes place at that point. And uh, one thing that's changed just the point that I am in my career, I used to only outline really to the climax of the book, and then everything after that was wishy-washy. But now my publisher is wanting me to submit a complete synopsis 
before like they'll approve like the next book in the series, and that's requiring me to actually plot more thoroughly to the very end than I probably would naturally do. I just brutally lie on my synopsis. I never <laughs> and they never go back and check. And they never call <laughs> on it or anything. Never. <laughs> I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who has who, who sort of pants through outlines. Well, I'm a structured nut, and I will expound on that topic until you beg me for mercy. So, you know, I'll try not to bore you to death. But um, I, I am like these ladies. I am a hopeless structure person. I, I start with my story dilemma. And in the case of um, Infinite Now, her dilemma is she's alone. And in the end, I need to resolve that aloneness. Either she's successfully not alone, or she's unsuccessfully still alone. At the end, we can have a you know a happy ending or a sad ending. At the end, um, I am uh, rigorous about my pacing. I am rigorous about where things go. And because I'm such a structure nut, I know when something's getting too wordy here or not quite wordy enough there. I know where a scene has to be plopped in or it doesn't have to be plopped in. Um, and my outlines do start to look like, isn't that the story of the day? <laughs> you know? um, so I don't end up writing, my early writing career, I wrote 700 drafts, and then like, I couldn't take 15 years for every novel. So um, I don't write anywhere near as many drafts because I do all that work up front now. And um, I think about the character. My stories are not so much about all the external stuff that happens. That's all just the framework to tell the internal story of the character. That's my. That's where I always start with the character. Okay, I think we have time for one more sort of short question uh, before uh, we bring the T Scouts up. Uh, maybe right up here in the front. Tomorrow Paris is my favorite novel. Oh, I love that. That is such a hard question. <laughs> well, I, I will say Gail was big influence on me. Sort of, yeah. And I was able to tell her that right after I'd signed my initial book deal back in San Antonio. She was able to say, you're like my first book baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm saying that not to kiss unto Gail, but because that is a legit, that that's the truth of it. And other authors like Lindsay Broker, who's a great indie author, you know, really ones who showed me that steampunk is incredibly fun and it's so visual. And there's just so much to play with there. I, I draw on the authors, my uh, culture, the Mediterranean authors. I draw on you know, uh, Laura Esquivel and Isabella Allende. <laughs> and uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. 100 Years of Solitude. Gabriel Garcia. I'm so embarrassed. Um, and Paolo Calvino. Uh, yeah, Isaac is that singer. I draw on these because they're from my culture, and that is the way I write. Uh, Magic is just part of it. So, well, how does your magic system work? It's like, well, it's magic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it has rules. I gotta have rules. You need rules right now. Oh my God, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so that's that's um, those are all the authors. And I realize there, you know, also people like Richard Matheson. Weirdly enough, <laughs> you know, seminal Ray Bradbury. Um, yeah, seminal works. Shirley Jackson. You know, um, I, I, those are the people I go back to, Cormac McCarthy. I, these are the writers that I go back to when I get stuck. I pull out their books and I say, what did he do at this point in his book? 
You know, did he do the same thing in the other book? Does he do the same sort of a thing when I'm working out those twists and those turns? I, there's a reason we still read that. There's a reason they still make movies of their stuff. There's a reason Ralph Sterling kept putting them on Twilight Zone. <laughs> 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 yeah. So um, and that, that's where I, I go back. I mean, modern authors, it's different, but those, it, the, you're looking for my inspirations, that's where I draw them. Okay, can we have the Tucson Steam Hunt Society uh, Peace Scouts come forward? They have a whole row of them. We're working on that. All right, come on. Come on, I'm not doing it alone. <laughs> And for you, because you're so sweet. Thank you. We haven't met before, but you seem very charming. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I like you. We're all getting tins of tea and lovely buttons. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now, oh, come on, come on. Dearest Gail. Oh, God. <laughs> patron saint of tea. Yes. Oh, most Sick. glorious. We would like to induct, in, uh, induct you as an honorary tea scout. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> oh, my God. We have procured for you from the workshop of Doom your own hat. Oh, my God. <laughs> Put a hat on top of my hat. <laughs> it's a very good thing to do, I think. Right. Yeah, no, solids. All right. Um, then, of course, <laughs> you have to have your emergency kits. Oh, wow. With, with your handbook. <laughs> I don't need a handbook. I know how to do tea. And your tea scouts. Oh, okay. Right. Of course, semaphore napkins in case you're in the bush. It's <laughs> <laughs> a signal for tea. <laughs> and your non breakable tea cup. Oh, oh nice. yes, that's useful. Thank you. And Nikki's. Of course. And of course, more tea. Yeah, thank you, ladies. Very much. I feel honored and honorary. You're honorary. <laughs> so thank you so much. Gail includes a lot of tea in her books. I do. I do. love steampunk is because so many people take it and, and make it their own I think and, and it's uh, so in fact we and the clothes the clothes are really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the <laughs> now I think we actually do have time for just one more brief question before my closing statement so we have one more to the lady in blue do you uh, usually create your world before or after you create your characters? It's okay. So, how many people in the audience are writers or would like to become writers? All right. So, here's my biggest piece of advice. 
remember the origin of your process, because people are going to ask you about it a lot. Um, I absolutely cannot remember whether Alexia came first or the Parasolvers. I honestly can't. Uh, I think I was running a thought experiment where I was basically going, if you have apex predators, this has always worried me about urban fantasy. If you have apex predator, predators preying upon humans, they must have a biological control in place. There's a reason rabbits outbreed um, birds of prey, right? Uh, so what's your biological control on vampires and werewolves? And I think that's where my sort of brain was going when I thought, well, what I really want then is a character who can kind of cancel them out, who's really, really rare. We can just kind of nullify them. Like, wouldn't it be cool to have a superpower that's no superpower whatsoever? You just cancel other people's superpowers, uh, and that's kind of. So I was, I was just running a thought experiment. I think when I invented my my main character. Um, so kind of both at once. In my case, for both of my series, it was the world came first. For uh, Clockwork Dagger, I thought how cool it would be to have murder on the Orient Express on an airship, and then I had to figure out. Okay, and then I was thinking, yeah, I'd love to work the healer into it. Why is everyone trying to kill her? What's going on here? So that's where the inspiration came for that. And then for, for Breath of Earth, it was all about trying to rewrite the San Francisco earthquake with magic and explaining that. Um, I think for me, they, they grew up together. And I, I don't mean that to sound like this cop out. Like, um, usually I, ha I start a character and I have a story and I have something I need the character to do. And... I, I am a big believer that, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> like, when the author is ready, the setting appears. As it happened in this, in this one book, uh, the, the flu popped up, you know, and an anniversary coming up, and there was a family history, and I, I had all the right places. Um, the, the next book I have coming out was one I wrote many years ago, and uh, it wasn't working as it was. And I was on a drive to San Diego, and, and <laughs> I suddenly said to my husband, I'm trying to get into a fairy story. <laughs> so you'll have fairies next time. <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that the solution presents. But I think the story, so when everybody's asking about story, um, you have two sides to story. You have the external framework. That's all the bells and the whistles and you know the vampires and all this other stuff. Then you've got the character and what happens to the character in their journey. For me, I always start with that journey and the setting appears. And I have no restrictions on where that can go. I have no preordained. I just decide, well, why not fairies? Let's just see what happens. Well, thank you all for being such wonderful panelists. Thank you. Thank you all for attending Magical History and for your support of the festival. Don't forget to become a friend or ensure our to ensure our festival remains a free event and supports important literacy programs in the community. All audience members are asked to vacate the venue quickly so we may begin our next program on time, which in, in our case I think is going out to sign books. So please come out and read the authors in person at the signing room. And buy books! <laughs> It is in the U of A So we'll downstairs and right across the biggest of the book vendors. Hi guys. If you're a fan of reading like I am and you've been looking to try out audible.com for audiobooks, we have a link for a free 30-day trial. So go ahead and check out audibletrial.com 
slash creative plan podcast network. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash creative plan podcast network. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.